0: Chapter 3 of Perke Avos, Mishnah 6. Rabbi Nechunya ben Hakana Omer. Rabbi Nechunya ben Hakana says, Call him a alav, all Torah. Whomever accepts upon himself the yoke of Torah, ma'avirin mimenu ol malchus ve'ol They remove from him the yoke of the government, of the kingdom, and the yoke of dera of the way of the life, the way of the land, of worldly responsibilities. V'chol ol Torah, and whoever throws off from himself the yoke of Torah, nos nin ol malchus They place upon him the yoke of the government and the yoke of worldly responsibilities. This yoke is similar to what the yoke they put on an animal, if you want to plow the field with the animal, you put the yoke on it, and that kind of produces submission by the animal, and here we're talking about the various yokes that we could have, the yoke of Torah, the yoke of the kingdom, and the yoke of Derecher, it's the way of the world. So who was Rav Nechonya ben Hakano? So like all the other sages that we're talking about here, uh, he is going to live in the first and second century of the common era. That's basically the time period of the authors of Piratei You have some of them that go earlier, uh, like the Zugos that we had in Chapter 1, but the bulk of the sages are sages that are going to live in the 1st and the 2nd century of the Common Era. He, too, was a student of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, like we had those five students that we talked about in Chapter 2. He was also a student of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, not quite those five students. It wasn't five primary students. He was a student as well. Uh, he was the teacher of Rabbi Yishmael, one of the great sages of the Talmud. And there's not much that we know about him. Uh, there are a few teachings brought in his name. Uh, and there's a few interesting stories, which I want to share, uh, the stories about Rabbi Nechonu Ben-Arkana. So the Talmud says uh, that he lived a very long life. And there's a series of teachings in the Talmud where the sages who had long life, they were, they were probed you know, why did you live such a long life? Why didn't you die younger like the rest of your colleagues? Which is an interesting question. Like, you know, we're we're asking someone who lived a long life, what's your secret to your advanced age? And he responded that he had three policies that he did that caused him to have a long life. Number one, he says that in his life, He never achieved honor via the disgrace of his friend. He never was promoted. He never was exalted via his friend being lowered, being embarrassed, number one. Number two, I never cursed my friend on my bed. We'll see what that means in a second. And number three, I was very easygoing with my money. And Tom explains what these three characteristics are. So he gives an example. What does it mean to not be honored at the expense of your fellow's degradation? So he gives a story. There was a rabbi who was carrying a shovel. And it's not the most honorable thing for someone to carry a shovel. You know, shovels like for, for gardeners, for laborers, for people who do landscape. A great sage carrying a shovel is a little embarrassing. So another sage walked over and the Rabbi says, no, I'll hold the shovel for you. It's not, it's beneath your dignity to hold the shovel. Let me hold it. And the first rabbi says, well, do you usually walk around carrying shovels? Is that usually something that you do? Because if not, I'm not going to let you hold it for me. Because then, in effect, my honor is going to be preserved by your denigration. And therefore, for me to give you the shovel, to have you be disgraced so that I could be honored, that's improper. But this is one example, but there's a general idea here that sometimes, you know, when you have your colleagues that they're discussing and you have one colleague is a little bit not so, uh, sharp or whatever. So you can kind of accentuate your own competence by highlighting that person's incompetence. You know, when you compare someone To someone else who's lacking, that person who's not lacking, even if they're not necessarily earning yet, but compared to the other guy, then they look much better. And that's the problem. We don't try to get honor via the denigration of our fellow man. Rabbi Nechunah ben in his lifetime, he testified that he never did it, and that's one of his secrets to long life. Secondly, he never had the curse of his fellow on his bed. Meaning that he followed a custom that every night when he would go to sleep, he would first declare, I forgive anyone who has pained me. If someone that you interacted with during the day caused you some problems, he he would clear his slate every night and he would never have any hard feelings towards anyone before he went to bed and that uh, cleansed him of any bad feelings with any other people and that too contributed to his long life and finally he was easy with his money he wouldn't like be so fastidious you know to demand you go to the taxi driver and it's a uh, 97 cents you say okay keep the dollar you know he was a little bit generous with the shopkeepers he wouldn't demand with absolute precision. To take the, all the change of every transaction. He was more easygoing. He was willing to forgive and yield. A lot of people have a little bit more. And even if you lose a little bit, so what? Let them be happy and let them have the few extra pennies. That's that, that's okay. And these are his secrets to success. And I find it really interesting that, you know, we think that what causes us to have long life is our genes, is our diet, if we're spiritual, we say, well, God gave me a long life. And all these three things are all interpersonal. You know, he never was honored with his fellow man's expense. He never had any friction between him and his fellow man accompany him to bed. And he was willing to give his fellow man the benefit of the doubt, let, let, let him win the transactions. I think it's just an interesting thing to ponder. What this is telling us. Maybe we could even suggest, you know, I did a podcast recently about Ain Hara and this idea that other people can convey certain karma, you know, certain negative feelings that could actually affect your life. The Talmud goes as far as to calculate that 99% of people, the actual cause of death is Ayn Hara, is evil eye. And one person, 1% of people, die due to natural means, which is a very astonishing statement. But maybe that's kind of the answer to this, that all the people that he interacted with have just positive feelings towards him. And that positivity that he had from the people, that contributed that he didn't die an early death and he lived a long life. And the Talmud flips this all on its head. Everything's upside, everything's the other way around. The Talmud says that people are allotted a certain amount of years to live, but they could lose it due to sin or various other reasons. For example, the Talmud tells us that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were all slated to live 180 years. That's how many years the Almighty apportioned for them. And indeed, Isaac lived 180 years. He cashed them out. Abraham died at the age of 175. Why did Abraham lose out those five years? So the Talmud tells us that Abraham was promised you'll die in a good old age, which means that you won't have any problems with your children when you die. And Esau, Esau, he went awry. He became a sinner when Abraham was about to be 175. And therefore, the Almighty took Abraham five years early to fulfill his promise, his other promise to him, that he won't see any of his descendants depart on a bad path. Now Jacob is actually going to pass away, this week's Parsha, at the age of 147. So he's missing 33 years from the 180 years that he was initially assigned with. Why did he lose 33 years? So we're told something very shocking, and maybe it shows us a little bit of the uh, how short the leash we have. In this passage, Parsha, Jacob met Pharaoh, and when Jacob met Pharaoh, they had an exchange. Pharaoh asked him, well, "How old are you?" And Jacob responds with this whole, this whole, whole long answer. Well. I am a 130 years old but the my, my life hasn't been that good and the years of my life and the years of my sojourns have not reached the life of my forefathers and the years of their sojourns. a whole long answer. But if you read it simply, it seems like he's kind of complaining. And we're told by our sages, if you count the amount of words in that exchange between Jacob and Pharaoh, it's 33 words. And for each word that he had of complaining to Pharaoh he lost a year. So that's why he lost 33 years. And in fact, Jacob is penalized even for Pharaoh's words because Pharaoh sees him and Jacob looks all old and uh, wrinkly and sad and Pharaoh was prompted to ask him, how old are you? Are you all right? And that too is included in Jacob's tally because Jacob should have a more exuberant, happy, ebullient countenance and if he's moping a little bit in a way that actually prompts Pharaoh to ask how old are you, that too, is, those words too are included in his tally of how many years he, he loses. So Jacob really was slated to live 180 years but he lost 33 of them. So he only made it to 147. I would maybe even surmise that maybe all of us are supposed to live to 100 or 150, 200, but all kinds of things that we do detract from the amount of years that we are allotted and we die early. Rabbi Nechurim Anakana lived a long life. He didn't have a cause for other people to be, uh, to, to hate him or to be envious of him. People loved him. People had very positive emotions towards him. And this is just a little episode, a little anecdote that we hear about in the, in the Talmud about this great sage. He also, invented the prayer set upon entering and upon exiting the academy of learning. If you open up many books of Talmud, they have in the first page, the prayer is supposed to say when you start studying and the prayer is supposed to say when you end studying. And this is from the Talmud. The Talmud says, what is the text of that prayer? May it be the will before you that I shouldn't make a mistake or a blunder in matters of study. Let my friends be joyous with me. I shouldn't say on what is pure that it's impure, on no, what is impure that's pure. My friends shouldn't blunder in studying either, and I should be happy with them. And when you leave the House of Scholarship, you tell the Almighty, and the prayer is that I thank you that you placed my lot amongst those who sit in the base ministry in the House of Scholarship and not from those who sit and waste time because I wake up in the morning and, and they wake up in the morning, I wake up to study Torah, they wake up to matters of nonsense, I toil, they toil, I toil and receive eternal reward, they toil and do not receive eto- eternal reward, I run and they run, I run to the life of Allah, and they run to be'er shachas, is to the empty pit of purgatory. That's another contribution of Rabbi Nechoni that he codified these prayers that we say at the entrance and at the exit of the academy of learning and some of the commentaries point out that the text of that prayer is kind of similar to the idea that he's saying over here in this mission he's talking about there's like three yokes you have the yoke of torah you have the yoke of of kingdom and you have the yoke of derech of the way of the world everyone's got a yoke the only question is which yoke is it is it this yoke is it that yoke or is it the other yoke and that's similar to his prayer. Like we run and they run. We wake up and they wake up. We toil and they toil. Everyone toils. The question is where are you going to direct your toil? We're all submitted to something. We all have something that tells us how we should behave, how we should live. We don't do that willingly. That's beyond the realm of our free will. However, our free will is to choose which of those yokes we choose to. To submit ourselves to. And here we're told that if we choose to live and abide and, ab- and absorb the yoke of Torah, then we are able to clear away the other yokes. Because once you have this yoke, you cannot have that yoke. So what does it mean to have the yoke of Torah? Can't you just observe the Torah? can you just study the Torah? What is this idea that you have to have a yoke of Torah in order to be able to earn all these benefits? And the answer is, is that, you know, why do we study Torah? Why do we observe the Torah? Why do we observe the mitzvot? Like, what what's the rationale for that? And there could be many different rationales for all kinds of behavior. You know, we could go to study Torah because it's interesting, because we get free food, because we get to schmooze with our friends, because... You know, the game doesn't start till later. There's all kinds of reasons that we could have. We like it. It's interesting. Well, what about when there are no other reasons? It's not interesting. It's kind of boring. It's kind of cumbersome. It's difficult. That's the question. Do we study then? Do we observe then? Or when it gets a little bit difficult, then we say, no, 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 we have other things to do. We have other priorities. Yoke of Torah That we find in this Mishnah is referring to a certain submission to Torah, irrespective of desire. Like when you put a yoke on an animal, the animal is now compelled to start walking up and down the rows of the field, plowing, pulling the plow with it, whether it lights it or not. That's what it means to be a yoke. It's an image of, of, of submission where someone doesn't have a choice but to do that. You know, people have jobs, right? Well, what do you decide? You know what? Today, I'm not in the mood. Actually, this whole month, I'm not in the mood. I'm not interested. I'd rather stay home. I'd rather watch Netflix and eat ice cream. Well, that's a good feeling that people have, but people don't do that. Why do people do that? Because you have no choice. You have to You have to have a job and you ha- and your job demands that you come at a certain time and that you leave at a certain time and you produce a certain level of productivity of output and you have no choice. You can't just say I'm not in the mood. There's no not in the mood. You go. If if you're sick, okay, fine. You're sick. But just to say I'm not interested, it doesn't work like that. That's a yoke. And here he's telling us that it's possible for someone to say that same relationship that I have with my job, I have with Torah. I I, I have no choice in the matter. This is what I need to do and there's no other options. Total submission to the Almighty. We're going to read a little bit in the in the, in the Torah about uh, Yisachar. Yisachar is the is the one of the sons of Jacob. Issachar, I think, it's pronounced in English. And when Jacob is about to pass away, he gathers his sons and he gives them all a blessing. And he compares Yisachar to a to a donkey that's carrying a load. And we know that. Yisachar was the tribe, was the individual, in the tribe that they, were, they excelled in Torah study, and this is an, uh, this is the model that Jacob tells us. It's it's like a it's like a donkey. In fact, the commentaries tell us that there's a difference in the donkey and the horse. Horse and the donkey can both carry loads. The Difference is that when the horse horse takes a break, you remove the load. The donkey, when it's breaking, you keep a load on it. There's no breaks. There's no rest for the weary. But the, the the model of of Yisachar of of submission of having this yoke of Torah is that there is no time where it removes from itself. Okay, now it's now it's off time. Now we take uh, we take a day off. In fact, there's a famous Jewish saying: if you abandon Torah for one day, then you're abandoning God for two days. It's almost like our relationship with the Almighty, is fleeing from us. And just to keep up, we have to study Torah. But if I take a day off, I'm heading away from it, and it's heading away from me. So not only is there one day separation between us, there's two days of separation between us. I I like to tell my kids, you know, if there's, you have to study at least something every day. Even if it's one minute, even if it's 30 seconds. Something you shouldn't have a day without Torah study. It it could be the, the most... Minor, but something. Have some touch point with that. Because that shows a certain degree of commitment, even if it's not in the schedule, we're on vacation. Whatever it is, there's a certain submission, a certain responsibility almost that we accept upon ourselves that we have a touch point with Torah, regardless of everything else. Regardless. It's a certain commitment. We don't choose it. We're always in on this. That's a little bit. Maybe it's a little yoke, but obviously it's something. It's some degree of submission to God via commitment to Torah that we have every day. But the, the point is, is that it shows only about the person, not about the Torah per se. That the person is saying that I'm, I'm a kind of person that I have a certain relationship with Torah. That means I can't abandon it even for for, even for, 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 for a day. I need it. Now, the actual acceptance of this yoke is the most important thing. And this is a general idea that we see throughout Jewish literature that it's not about the activities, it's about the decisions that prompted the activities. That's where the actual free will choices lie. The Talmud tells us, if someone is desirous of holiness, if someone is desirous of pure, if someone is coming to become pure, then they'll be successful. In fact, the Talmud tells us, In the path, Upon which a person is desirous of going, that's the path that, that they will be led upon. The choices that we made are really which path that we're going to embark on. Which yoke are we going to accept? And the actual, like the, the, along the timeline, along the progression of our life, the, the choice, the choices that actually matter are the ones at the very earliest stages of choosing which yoke to to have and there's three different ones there's the yoke of torah and the yoke of malchus which means kingdom and the yoke of derech heretz the way of the land what exactly do these things mean so there's various different explanations generally speaking we're told that derech heretz means the way of the land which means the rules of nature And nature mandates that if someone doesn't let's say get a job they'll starve and they won't have a house, and they won't have a car, and they won't have a livelihood. And the rules of and the yoke of malchus, the yoke of kingdom, that refers to a certain degree of police power of the government making your life difficult, whether it means by constricting you to an army, by charging taxes, by having you, God forbid, arrested imprisoned, things that hopefully don't exist much in our society, but definitely did exist in previous societies on uh, wide scales. But the idea that someone else can have a say in how you live your life, someone else could decide, someone else could have a yoke upon you, whether it's the king, whether it's the governor, whether it's the mayor, whether it's the police, whether it's the FBI, whatever it is, someone else determines what happens to you. And they're, they're employing their free will, so to speak, to decide how you're going to live your life. That's called the yoke of kingdom. And this is the yoke of, of the way of the world, which means that there are certain rules that you have to abide by or else you can't live. It's the laws of nature, the laws of physics, the laws of the way of the world determine how you have to live your life. And here we're told that there's this elixir. There's this panacea. There's this way of changing the paradigm of becoming someone who is not subject to the will of others. Others have no say over them. Others have no sway over him. There's a way of someone being able to live a supernatural life that the rules of nature don't apply to them. How so? By accepting upon themselves the yoke of Torah. There's three different ways that people could be governed. Nature, the free will of others and then directly by God. When someone accepts upon itself the yoke of Torah, they're opting to have God and God alone decide what happens to them. Other people cannot affect them, and the rules of nature don't apply to them. So for example, Abraham. All kinds of people want to kill him. They, they can't kill him. Why? Because God says, I'm in charge of him. He's living on that higher plane It's only God who decides what happens to them, and God says, I don't want them dead. Uh, Similar, any, any miracle, a miracle by definition, is an activity that happens on that plane where God decides what happened, not nature. Jewish people are surrounded by their enemies. They have the Egyptians encircling them, and behind them is a sea. Well, what happens? In the natural course of things, if it was just nature or... The rule of kingdom, the yoke of kingdom deciding what happens to them. They're all, they're all destroyed. They're all killed. They're all decimated. But because they're existing at that moment on that higher realm, on that higher phase, God says, I will decide what happens. So I'll split the sea. Now, is it very difficult to God to split the sea? Of course not. It's as easy as God not splitting the sea for God to, yes, indeed split the sea. Those are the same different degrees of difficulty for God. But normally, Unless the person earns the right to, to have God decide what happens to them, they're subject to nature, they're subject to the will of other people. And if other people have the greater weaponry, then they may, they may lose their life. They may, they they may lose that encounter. They may suffer. But God here says, you know what? No, they're not, they're not subject to those rules. So all the rules of nature are thrown out the window. Doesn't matter. All the rules of police power of the government doesn't matter. Now they're in this higher plane and the sea indeed splits. And every miracle is that same same model. It's that person or those people being meritorious to be able to be treated by God alone and therefore miraculous things, i.e. things that are not subject to the rules of nature, will happen. There's many, many examples of this. The Talmud in the book of Baruchos, page 35b has a whole question. It sounds so preposterous to modern ears. But the Talmud says that the verse tells us we should never stop studying Torah. Well, what does that mean? If you read it simply, it means never stop studying Torah. But there's another verse that says, well, this is the verse in the Shema, you should gather your grain and you'll be able to have a a good crop. Well, what does that imply? It means you're a farmer. Well, what does a farmer need to do? farmer needs to plow and plant and harvest and deal with all kinds of earthly stuff. So which one is it? If you're studying Torah all the time, you have no time to be a farmer. That's the question the Talmud poses. So the first answer the Talmud gives to reconcile these two seemingly opposing verses is that, yeah, it means to do both. When it says study Torah all the time, it means all the time. It means most of the time. But also have a farm and also gather in your crops. And says the Talmud, the words of the Talmud, live with derechertz. Live with the way of the world. Don't try to do anything supernatural. If you want to feed your family, you need to have a farm. And therefore, study Torah and try to do both. Try to fulfill both of them as as best as you could. Maybe that this Talmud's formulation... Uh, is what the Ramam advises when he says, study nine hours a day and work for three hours a day. And then you have 12 hours to do everything else, but 12 hours a day of, of work time, nine for study, and three for work. A balance, nice even balance. That's the first answer. The second answer is no. When it says study Torah, it means literally, all the time. All day, all night, every time that you're awake, study Torah. So what does it mean when the Torah tells you that... You should gather in your grains. What, when is that ever applied? Well, that only applies when someone doesn't study Torah all, the day, all all the time. If you study Torah all the time, God will provide. Don't worry about it. God will provide. But if you don't study Torah all the time, then you're a subject to the laws of nature, and then you will have to gather your grains because God will not provide. What it says to study Torah liter- uh, all the time means literal. And when it says you should gather your brains, that's only if you're not doing things correctly. Only if you're not doing things correctly, only then do you, uh, do you a- actually have to submit yourself to the rules of the world. Now, the Talmud concludes that a lot of people have tried both methods. A lot of people tried the kind of more balanced approach. And a lot of people tried the more extreme approach. All Torah study, no work. Most people who tried the balanced approach were successful. And most people that tried the extreme approach were not successful. But it's interesting. The Talmud does not say that the approach is not possible in any instance. It doesn't say that it's, it's wrong. It doesn't render a ruling which one's right, which one's wrong. Rather, it says, what's the feasibility of actually doing it? Of actually saying 100% I'm all in. I'm going to live by, by the grace of God. He will provide And he'll find some miraculous way. I'm going to live in a a miraculous way. Most people can't do that because they still have lingering doubts. They're not sure. Will he really provide? And then when they do that, they're actually – they're they're dipping down out of that miraculous realm. And therefore, they're subject to the rules of nature and it won't work for most people. Because once you're subject to the rules of nature, then God's not going to provide you in a miraculous way. The author of the second opinion, the more extreme opinion, is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. He spent 13 years of his life in a cave studying Torah all day and all night. Well, what did he eat? So we're told in the book of Shabbos, page 33b, that a spring sprouted up and brought water to his cave. And a carob tree grew there. And for 13 years, he ate carobs from the carob tree and he drank water from the spring. It wasn't a life of luxury, but he had whatever he needed. For us, the idea that we could just transcend and start living on a miraculous plane, it's not really feasible. If it wasn't feasible 2,000 years ago in times of the Talmud or it wasn't realistic in times of the Talmud, then it's not realistic for us, for sure, who have a much more diminished spiritual capacity. That said, I think the idea in general is a valuable idea of how do miracles happen. It happens by people transcending this, Submission that we all naturally have, A, to the laws of nature, B, to the power of, of other people, and living in this third realm by the grace of God, by the will of God in a miraculous fashion. But also I think there's a way for us to kind of dip our toe in it by not, not necessarily choosing to have just the yoke of Torah, but maybe add a degree of the yoke of Torah to our existing yokes. And to the degree that we do add the yoke of Torah, that's going to remove that same commensurate amount of yoke from other things. So we can start a little bit relying more on God and slowly becoming more, more spiritual. Not entirely. That's probably beyond us, but a little bit. And that, and that I think is all that is valuable. So I think it's, a, again, it's a very powerful idea, but for most of us, it's probably just an idea. It's not something we could actually uh, implement completely. I think that's a very uh, fair way of saying. But the idea is, is sound, that if someone chooses to be subjected to the will of God only, and they do it a thousand percent, then all the other yotes will be miraculously removed. They'll start living on that higher plane.